0: Session with Dr. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadid Holokwi. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holokwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call on with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310 4410555 Before I do the summary for the book of this week or the discussion for the book from the past week, um, I wanted to announce the book for this coming week. It was actually recommended to me by Sahand, who's a friend and who has recommended other books to me before. And he suggested this one, so I thought it's worth a read. I have not read it myself, but it's called The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. The Happiness Trap, How to Stop Struggling and Start Living by Russ Harris. So I'll be reading that this week, and we'll talk about it on um, next Monday's show. Hope you'll join me in reading that, and thank you again for that recommendation. Now let's get to the book for this past week, which in some ways is slightly different from other books I've read this year, uh, or have included in the book club or book of the week list, Um, This one is not specifically about psychology, it's more looking at social justice or society in general and things going on, but I thought it was an important book, one I'd read before and wanted to introduce to the readers or uh, listeners, I'm sure a lot of people have read it, but wanted to make sure we talked about it at least once this year. So the book for this past week was Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me. Um, and the book is an open letter from the author Ta-Nehisi Coates to his, at the time that he wrote it, 15-year-old son, Samori, essentially talking about being African-American or being black in America and what that means. Now, it's an open letter, but it's around 150 pages long, so not typically what you might consider a letter, but it's looking at his own experiences, but also trying to share and impart some wisdom onto his son about what it is like for him, in his own experience to be uh, black in America and what that experience continues to be. And the book is, it's beautiful but sad at the same time, kind of like hearing uh, a beautiful, beautiful song that can make you tear up. It has that same feeling because his writing is very poetic and the way he describes things makes you want to keep turning the pages and read more. But also, um, as I read it, I felt very sad when you try to understand or see what it's like for many members of our community. It does make you sad to see how things continue to be. And even what makes me more sad is the the denial that many people have that to be black in America is a struggle now. They might say before it was, but now things have gotten better. Um, Sometimes people talk about a post racial America. This idea that some people like to have that race doesn't matter anymore. And that if anyone brings up race, they are race baiting or, um, they're bringing race into it or playing the race card when we need to continue talking about racism and race in the United States, because it's a huge issue and has not gone away and won't go away unless we talk about it and deal with it. So, um, I won't do a really a summary of the book because essentially it's a, uh, an open letter and it talks about different experiences, but I'll talk about some of my thoughts related to the book and definitely sh- uh, my thoughts and also talk about the book itself. Um, so to begin with, we can never know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. We try our best and we're actually pretty good at it overall. Um, I was talking about that in the book Mindwise. I think that was Nicholas Epley was the author of that book, um, talking about how overall we're very good at re- understanding each other or quote unquote, as he put it, reading each other's minds, but we never can really know what someone else's experience is like. And the only way we can try to understand it is by asking. And even in asking and having someone describe it, we still won't know ever what it's actually like to be in someone else's shoes but we can get a, a better understanding or try to understand and see things from their perspective. So in reading this book, of course, uh, it does give you a glimpse or a under, better understanding and the way he writes it, I think, is very powerful. And it, it gets you to feel some of what he he's trying to describe, what he's feeling. But you'll never really know what it's like to spend a day in America being black. Just like for a man, they can never know what it's like to be a woman in uh, any country, wherever you're living, but whatever the differences are between men and women, how they're treated, still you can never fully understand what it's like to be a woman. And so in reading this book, it's a very good idea. I think for anyone to read it, it's not for um, a black audience, it's for anyone to read it, to understand and better, better see what it's like, what's going on really in our country. And as I said, it's important for us to talk about race and racism. Because we can't ignore that. Now, race itself, he talks about really that it's this idea. And sometimes he talks about it in ways of like those who believe they are white. Um, Because race is not a real thing. Now, we might think of it as very real because it has so much significance in our world. And we think we can tell or say that this is a very real thing. But how real is it when you think about you can't always tell people apart. You don't know exactly what their race is. Is or um, if you go to certain countries, to you, everyone is the same race because they all look the same, but to them, they'll see three different races there that are very distinct, and they might even hate or dislike each other because of being from different racial backgrounds. Um, And if we look at the diversity between or within any race, it's more than the diversity between what we consider races. So, this idea of race as this very real thing is not true. It's a social construction. Now, the consequences of what we've created are very real. Of course, things like slavery and the continued racism that we see are clear examples that racism exists. So something based on race exists. And he has this very uh, wonderful quote that I think describes this very well, where he says, but race is the child of racism, not the father. So essentially, it's not that there is race, this very real thing, and then racism came about because of that, but actually racism was the original thing, Um, and then we had race. So we wanted to differentiate, and we came up with the race essentially to do that, or that really it's not such a real thing. So a reminder that this idea and conception of race, as much as we think of it as so significant, it really is not and doesn't have to be. Now, because of how we've segregated and separated ourselves, different groups have created identities. And throughout the book, he talks about the black identity and different experiences he had, Uh, for example, growing up uh, poor in Baltimore and the violence of the streets and this feeling that he would never get to experience the dream, as he puts it. And he talks about the dream capitalized and the dreamers. And it's not dreamers like we're talking about now with the whole DACA debate, But dreamers, as he talks about the dream of really those who believe they are white and what they experience, um, the safety and the white picket fences and everything being so easy for them, as he puts it or how he describes it, but that this dream was not something possible for him or that even this dream was built on the bodies and the backs of the African Americans in this country. And he does talk about different aspects of American history which is something that many people don't like to look at. Or we think, okay, slavery happened, it's over, let's move on. But it's not that simple. The effects are still all around us. Um, There's an example you can use of if someone stabs you, and you say, okay, they've stabbed you, that's the problem, and then they pull out the knife. Now that they pulled out the knife, it doesn't mean everything is okay. And slavery was that knife. We could say, Yes, the knife was is no longer there, but doesn't mean it doesn't leave a wound, doesn't leave scars, it doesn't need healing. and It doesn't mean everything just goes back to normal. And in this country, we still haven't recovered from slavery yet. Um, I know people might think, well, it's so many years ago, essentially 1865, slavery ended in the United States. But that does not mean that the effects um, are not still affecting us today, that it's not something that's still going on. And so he describes in the book his experience as a young black boy and what he had to do to navigate, uh, you know, as he puts it, if he wasn't violent enough, he can get in trouble because he had to be able to defend himself and to have a certain status, so to speak. But then also, if he was too violent, he can get himself in trouble. And the ways he had to grow up um, as a black boy and then becoming a man uh, his experience at Howard University, which he describes as the Mecca and how it was so meaningful for him to have that experience and to be there and to share that with so many other people. And then, but he does describe meeting someone there, Prince Jones, who was killed by a police officer mistakenly. They had mistakenly followed him um, across, I think, a few states, it was, or a few jurisdictions, and eventually shot and killed him. They thought he was someone else, at least so the story goes, Um, but there was really no consequences to the killer. And even near the end of the book, he describes his meeting with that mother, the mother of the child who was taken away from her when he was, I think, in his early 20s, very young, um, and how she's still dealing with that many years later. And so when you you hear the, the different stories and the accounts that he has throughout the book, another one that's very powerful, he talks about when his son was four, um, the son he's writing the book to, and this white woman pushed his son aside in kind of a way that he thought um, was indicative of the racial hierarchy, so to speak, of how they, he thought the woman felt that he can just push her his son aside, and he tried to respond to her, defend his son, but felt that she, well, essentially he reacted as he said it, almost like he lost his head, not realizing almost like the rules of how he's supposed to engage. And because he was trying to defend his son, maybe said more than he thought he should have if he wanted to stay safe. And other people got involved. Nothing ended up happening. But he said he remembers how he was upset with himself for in some ways endangering himself and his son in that way. But a reminder that things are not completely equal. And we don't like to acknowledge that. We don't like to say that there's issues and we want to say, okay, we had racism and we've overcome it. Everything is fine now. We like to avoid uncomfortable conversations and just assume everything's okay. I talk about this in a much smaller scale, but even in our relationships, we do the same thing. Or with our family members, something's not okay, something's wrong. But we don't want to talk about it. We want to pretend like everything is okay. And the same goes on a societal scale. We want to say racism is over. I don't see race. I don't care about race. I'm not a racist. But that's not going to solve any of the problems and any of the real issues that are going on. Racism is still very much alive and well, unfortunately. Uh, We saw the recent incidents um, with the white supremacists who it's not that they weren't there and now they've suddenly shown up. Of course, they've been there, but they've been emboldened uh, possibly, I think very likely by the president who's currently in the White House and the way that he has promoted some of their ideas, or at least made it seem okay to be a bully or to say something outrageous. And even a lot of what he said was racist or anti people of color and even some of the things he's taken action on already have been in that way as well. Like DACA that I was talking about before, which he's seeming to flip-flop on, but nonetheless, he sent a clear message about how he felt. So we have to not be afraid to talk. We have to acknowledge and accept that we're still living in an imperfect nation and that is not a level playing field and not everyone gets the same chances as everyone else. It's not a fair deal for everyone and we have to work to make that change, not just black or not just even white, it doesn't matter what race or color you are or ethnicity, whatever background you have or claim to be or identify with, we all need to be involved to make things better and not be afraid to talk about it. And so I hope everyone would read this book um, as as a great, I don't want to say introduction, but description from one individual's standpoint and a very smart and uh, wise one at that, ta Coates, Between the World and Me. I uh, hope you do read the book if you haven't already. And if you have any thoughts on it, would love to hear it, but you can call about that or anything else as we go into the next segments. And just again, a reminder of the book for this week, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. But I do want to say this was an important book that I wanted to include Between the World and Me by ta Coates. I wanted to make sure I included it at some point this year, and especially what was going on in Charlottesville uh, well, just last month, I thought it was important to, to introduce it now. So I hope you will go ahead and read that book. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui, studio number 310 4410 In the previous segment, I was talking about the book, ta Coates' book, Between the World and Me, and I thought it'd be good to talk about discussing race and racism with your kids, uh, something that many parents might not do or you do indirectly without recognizing it, so maybe it's better to have a more formal or direct conversation with them, but also recognize the messages you're giving to them about race and racism. To begin with, you have to be aware that your kids are always listening to you and your explicit and implicit communication. They'll pick up on how you feel about different races, um, what you think, who you think is good, not good, what you think is good and bad about them, and all of that. They're paying attention to everything you say, so beware Of that. And to begin with, essentially, you're given a child when children come into this world, they don't have racism wired into them, or they're not trying to be, or they don't believe all the things we believe as adults or start to see about race in the media. And otherwise, they have essentially a clean slate, so to speak. Now, is there some tendency for us to prefer people, quote unquote, like us? Maybe which could go back to our ancestors choosing the people closest to them to to survive with because of a survival issue. But nonetheless, we know that when it comes to issues like race, what we see so clearly is race and differentiation. Kids don't see that same way. Uh, a story I like to share is from a friend of mine um, speaking about another friend. They're showing us a video of this child in can't remember if it was Namibia, but it was. I think it was Namibia. Nonetheless, uh, this child, her skin was very white, but she was raised in uh, that country, and all of her friends had dark skin. They were black, and when they asked her, what's the difference between you and your friends, to most of us who've been so um, influenced to be so sensitive to race and color, skin color, we would think that's the most obvious thing, but that was not what this young girl was saying she would talk about height or she would say our clothes is different or other things but that was not the most salient or important thing that was different between herself and her friends so your kids don't have this idea of race and yes they're going to be exposed to the media and to friends and people around them and all of that so can you completely guard them and put them in a bubble from everything racist that's going to be thrown their way no but You must recognize that your influence is a very, very big and significant one. And it's one that is definitely going to exist. So you want to make sure it's a good one rather than a negative one. And to begin with, I would hope you accept that introducing racism to your kids is not a good thing. Now that might seem very obvious to say it. No one's going to say, I think it's good to teach racism to your kids. However. Uh, Many people do think, well, there are these truths about different races. So I want to, in essence, educate my kid or teach them about those. Um, I don't think that's true at all. And I don't think it's a good thing to believe even for yourself, but I would hope anyone listening doesn't really believe that 100% or think that it's something that must be taught to their kids to, to learn something. Here's another instance where your kids are more wise, or I should say, have it better than you. If we could be more like kids in this way, just like I've talked before about not being self-conscious, something that little children have that we, in a way, take away from them or in their development goes away. This is another one of those instances. To be racist or to see things in this type of way, black and white, literally, is not something that's going to help any of us. And so I hope you don't think you need to show your kids any of that. So explicitly, hopefully no one is giving that message, but implicitly in your interactions, I've seen it uh, in lots of different ways. People just make little offhand comments about different races that are condescending or putting them down or somehow showing them as less than, not as good as um, us or not as good as other groups. So it's very important to be conscious of this. So like anything, actually, the first thing you can do is to work on yourself. And another issue I've talked about when it comes to race is we have to accept that at some level we are all racist by that. I don't mean that we're uh, discriminating against people in a very significant way every day of our life. We have to recognize that at least at some level, implicitly, we have some beliefs about different races and we have to start to challenge those and recognize those to be aware of them. Uh, for some people, they like the idea of thinking that I'm not a racist and that's actually something we debate sometimes. Are you a racist or not? And as if there's some kind of label that we have. And of course people, no, of course I'm not a racist. And everyone says that, but like anything, words don't mean very much. Your actions matter much more. Someone could say, I'm not a racist. And then, um, say or do something very racist in another moment. That doesn't mean much to me. Just like someone says they love you, but they don't do anything for you. You don't really feel like they love you. They have to show you their love. So we don't need to ask people, are you a racist or not? That's really not an important question. All but a very, very few are going to say yes anyway, but also we have to reflect that question back to ourselves. We all are racist to some degree, just from the influences we've had throughout society. We live in the United States in a racist country. Maybe that sounds a little strange to say, but the way the country is set up is itself racist. So we have to accept that, that we've been exposed to this. It's going to have some effect on us and we, it's up to us then to counteract that, to try to explore um, interacting with people from various races or different groups to see that, yes, of course they're all human, The, the silly stereotypes we've been led to believe are not true and they're not real. We have to see the humanity in one another and start to tear down those walls of us and them which I've talked about before, that the way we make an us can change. Who you consider us can change and the size of the them can become smaller as you realize everyone can be part of your us, part of your group. But that only happens when you interact with different people, when you work with them, when you see them in different settings and contexts, then you start to realize that like you, they care about things like their family being happy, doing work, doing good things, and they have the same needs and the same pains as you. And you see that we're not as different as we might think. So you first have to recognize as a parent that you're going to have your own racist thoughts, beliefs. Your parents probably taught you some level of racism, and you're going to have that within you. And your job is to limit that exposure. Almost we could think of racism as a poison. And so your kids come into this world pure from that poison pure of racism. They don't have to believe any of those things that you believe and seem to think everyone's going to take for granted or have to be part of the culture. They come to this world pure and your job is to limit their exposure to this toxin, to this poison. And that's one of the biggest things you can do in a lot of different ways is you can't protect your children from everything. Life can damage them in different ways, emotional pains, emotional struggles, but you're trying to limit that and make them feel the best about it that they can So you have to be very aware of what you're saying around your kids. Of course, not just about race, when it comes to men and women, when it comes to different groups, homosexuality, whatever it might be, and just in how you treat one another, that's very important. So you as a parent, one of the things you kind of actually get is that having your children can be the best motivation to become the best person you can be. Because if you want your kids to be good people. The best way to do that is to be one yourself. You can't try to force them to become something uh, that you're not, or tell them to be one thing and act in another way. They'll pick up on that very quickly. Unfortunately, now likely your kids will be better than you anyway, because each generation tends to kind of do that. But it's up to you to make sure what you're passing down is what's good for them, not what's bad for them. So very, that's very, that's something very important to me that you recognize what you're passing on to your kids when it comes to race and racism. Now, I did talk about making sure, when I talk about it as a poison, that can make it seem like you also want to make sure your kids don't get hurt or sad about racism. Um, but actually, I think the opposite is true. If your kids have questions about race or racism, or they wonder if some groups get treated poorly, you might think your initial reaction to be to make them comfort them. Make them feel everything is okay. Oh, no, no, everything is fine. Everyone's fair and everyone's good and and everyone's happy and there's no problems because we think our job is to make sure our kids don't become unhappy and to make sure our kids feel happy and don't get sad. But I think it's important, of course, in an age-appropriate way to expose children to the realities of this world, to not guard them from recognizing there still is injustice in the world. Not everything is perfectly fair. Not everything is always okay. And in that way, one of their duties as a citizen is going to be always to try to fight for what's right or promote what's right and to try to make things better and more fair. And that there are people that are suffering. Um, I even see this when it comes to talking about the homeless population. Parents sometimes feel like they have to say, oh, that person wants to be homeless or, oh, they made mistakes, so they're homeless, trying to justify what's going on, rather than recognizing that really it is unacceptable for people to live on the streets when we have the means to take care of everyone. And you can talk to them about that. Now, you might not necessarily see it the way I do, but if you do, don't be afraid to share with them that, yeah, it is unfair. And what would you like to do to help? And I've heard so many stories of children doing just the most incredibly compassionate things or expressing such compassionate wishes and love for people who are suffering. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all to allow your kids to recognize there is suffering in this world. You, you don't need to expose them to it constantly and make them very sad about it on, every day, but they should be aware of what's going on. So when race comes up, you can let them know, yeah, there there is some things that are unfair in this country still. we've got We've done a lot better. Each generation is doing better, and that's why... We're excited that you're going to contribute to that as the new generation, to make things more fair, to make things better, and that in our family, you can create your family culture to be a culture where we fight for the rights of anyone. doesn't matter who they are, what they are, anything. We're going to fight for anyone's rights, and every human being deserves to be treated fairly and with love, and that's something we're always going to do and we always are going to care about. So you can teach your kids that... Although things are not okay and things are not fair all the time and not fair for everyone, they can be part of the solution. Not only can they, they almost have to be or should be. We want to encourage them to feel that responsibility to do something about it. And yet again, here's another example of where you have to practice what you preach. If you just tell them to be a good person and to care, but don't show that in any way in your own life, well, it might not have much of an effect at all. But if you show them through your actions also, but through your words, that makes a big difference. And this idea uh, reminds me of a question I've been asked sometimes from some parents, they say, you know, our kids are raised in a wealthy neighborhood, but we want them to recognize that not everyone has life this easy, that there are people that are suffering or not doing so well. How do we, how can I do that for them? And sometimes they're looking for a one-step solution. Like, we're just going to drive through Skid Row one time, I'll tell them something, and then they'll get it. Um, and that doesn't really work, because when we do it in that way, when it's just almost like a museum that they're going to go see, but it's not really real and they don't connect with it, it doesn't really have an effect. They don't recognize the the reality of it, or it doesn't they don't see how it can maybe affect them or connect to those people. But to really have the effect you're looking for, it has to be, a more constant and consistent thing throughout their life where they recognize that people are poor that it's not their fault that they're poor of course people do have responsibility for what's going on into their life in their life to a degree uh, to a very big degree but still there are a lot of injustices in this world and we want to help those people so if you make it a monthly thing or you talk about it often or you interact with more people who are experiencing homelessness, that'll give them the message. But to think, how can I show them in one hour that homelessness is an important issue or that there's these injustices? It's not going to work. And the same is true when it comes to race and racism. Um, Now, you don't have to force conversations every day, but you do want to make it a topic that you talk about when it comes up and not shy away from it. I think a lot of parents, they think, I don't know all the answers. I don't know what to say. And the good news is you don't have to. You're not supposed to know everything. You can be curious with your children. Say, you know, I'm not so sure about that. We can look it up together or study it together. Or, you know, I don't know. That does sound unfair. I don't know why it's happening. You don't have to have an exact scientific explanation for racism and every historical fact that has contributed to the the state of affairs at this time. You cannot know. So don't be afraid to talk about these conversations because you won't have the perfect answer. You don't need to have them. Your kids are not expecting it. And you can be curious with them and even explore with them. Your job as a parent isn't to fill your kids with knowledge. It's to actually bring out the best in them. And actually you'll probably be amazed by the things they can teach you about race and racism that you've never thought of. Um, I've taught lots of classes with kids of different ages, talking about a lot of social justice issues, including racism. And I'm learning from them every time I do it myself because they see things in a way with fresh eyes that we unfortunately no longer have and you can learn a lot from them so like many topics i introduce on this show don't be afraid as parents to discuss important issues with your kids don't keep things taboo thinking that it's better for them not to worry about these things they can't handle these things they don't want to talk about these things it might make them sad guess what it might make them sad and that's okay they'll be sad for a little while but they'll be more connected and understand their world better and hopefully make a positive impact in that world. So you if, if you wanna be connected to this world as an adult or a child, it has to make you sad sometimes. That's the only way you're gonna to wanna to make things change. And that's okay. That type of sadness can be for a good reason or for the right reason, and to show your kids what's actually going on in their world. And we know that the way that most of the world's problems are gonna change is by the new generation who doesn't see things the way we do, who's more wise or will be more wise than we are, uh, taking the right steps and right actions and doing things in a different way. All right, going into our last commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delaqui. Welcome back to session with Dr. Fadid Holakwi, You know, I wanted to conclude the show talking about a, a topic that has come up a lot um, in various areas of my life, dealing with a lot of people, also in my private practice, but just in general, a topic I discuss often because it is an important one, looking at different communication styles, because so many of us struggle with the expression of our true feelings, emotions, what we think, what we feel, when we disagree with one another. And so we have a hard time being what we describe as assertive or having assertive communication, and we tend to fall into the two other categories of more unhealthy expression. Of course, at some times we might need to get one or the other as well, but that's passive or aggressive. So in passive communication, we are holding in what we think, what we feel, what we want, we're avoiding conflict. Or essentially, I should maybe say it in that way, that we're doing those things, holding back what we think and feel and want to avoid conflict, to not disrupt relationships, not rock the boat, Um, oftentimes afraid that if we do, we'll lose the person, lose the relationship or lose their validation, acceptance or love. So if I really tell you what I feel, you won't love me. If you really saw me, you wouldn't love me. Or if I disagree with you, you won't love me. Um... Or if I say something you don't like, you don't love me. And so being passive means that we put ourselves essentially on hold. And people can become so good at being passive that they actually don't even know what they want or think anymore. And so when you ask them, so I was like, no, I don't really care. That's why I said I don't care. Or, yeah, that's really what I feel. But if you actually take the time and explore it with them, or if they were able to connect with themselves, they'd see that actually they do care. They do have an opinion, or they do want something, or maybe they are unhappy about what's going on. But because it's so much safer for them to avoid the conflict or avoid the possibility of upsetting someone or of the threat of losing their acceptance or love, they choose the safer route of being passive. What do you want to do? Oh, I don't care. Or someone says, hey, we're going to go here. Okay, doesn't matter. Or someone says something they don't like and they just smile and hold that anger inside and they choose to be passive. Now, the other extreme is being aggressive. And aggressive means that, as it sounds, you will not mind stepping on people's toes, hurting their feelings, and you'll push your way to get your thought point across or your idea to become the one that's selected or your opinion to become um, the one that wins in the debate. So it's very much about winning. I'm going to, I don't care if I put you down. I don't care if I insult you. I will say whatever it takes just to make sure I get my way. So it has a way of putting others down, insulting them and not being concerned about others whatsoever. So we see it almost as the other extreme in the first one and being passive, you're almost too concerned about what people think and feel and want. And when you're being aggressive, you almost care too little and you say it in a too harsh of a way, too strong of a way. When we look at being assertive, it has that healthy medium where you care about what others think and feel in the sense that you're still going to be respectful, you are not going to be insulting, you're not going to put other people down, and you're going to be caring even in how you discuss what you're going to say. But at the same time very importantly something that the passive person doesn't do is they're going to listen to themselves too. They're going to make sure that what they think and feel is expressed and expressed clearly. So in assertive communication, you can say, you know what, I, I didn't like what you said. Or, you know, I hear what you're saying about that, but my idea is this. This is what I like. Or I know you want to go to that movie, but really... I'd like to go to this movie. What do you think? So you say your idea and you're going to discuss it with them. You're not going to, and and the passive person would say, okay, we'll go to whatever movie you want. That sounds good. The aggressive person says, no, we're going to this one because I want to see it or else I won't go see a movie with you. But the more assertive person is going to say, this is my opinion. I'm not going to step on your toes and it's going to be a discussion, but I'm going to share what I think, what I feel, what I believe. And for most people being assertive is not easy especially because for most people it wasn't modeled. Um, If we look at the Persian culture, for example, we see extremes of passivity and uh, aggression. Of course I'm generalizing, but we see that as being the norm, even also passive aggressive being a very common one. Passive aggressive is when you somehow express hostility or negativity without directly doing that, uh, without directly showing it. For example, um, making a sarcastic joke Can be a great passive aggressive way to get the anger out, but in the veil of something that's safe. Oh, I'm just joking, but you make a joke that's very insulting or biting or stinging to the other person, but you use it, the joke, as a way of making it okay or seeming to be okay. And so passive aggressive communication is a very hurtful one, and you see it in a lot of relationships, but very often it happens with someone who is passive, who holds so much in, but somehow is trying to get. The anger out in a way that seems acceptable to them and the people around them, and they, so they find a way to express it in these unhealthy, uh, passive-aggressive um, modes of communication. But what we're striving for is to be assertive, and as I was saying, in the Persian culture, we promote things like passivity a lot. Always say you're okay, no matter what. Don't disagree, especially not with your elders. Even Taro, if someone offers you something, say you don't want it or you don't care or you don't need anything or you don't want what they're offering to you and and push it away. Even if you're thirsty, you're hungry, say that you're not. So we're essentially saying be passive. When you meet new people, say extremely nice things about them, even if you don't mean it. So also we're, we're very much promoting not genuine communication, but we're very much big on being passive, especially when we're in the respectful mode but this is not a genuine respect because we see that when push comes to shove, people go to the aggressive way of communicating where if I'm angry with you, I'm going to say the meanest and worst things and cheat and lie and do whatever I need to do to get my way. Either you're super passive or we go to the other side and we become aggressive. And very often, or one area where this shows up the most is in the expression of anger. Unfortunately, most cultures most families do this but definitely I see this in our Persian families very strongly is that we don't express or show our children and model the expressions of anger in an assertive way so we almost make anger this uh, taboo emotion something that's not okay now of course it's even more taboo for women than men something I've talked about before and I won't get to today but And in general, for a lot of people and a lot of families, anger is not okay. So when you're angry, what do you do? You're not supposed to say anything. You hold it in and you just swallow it and just say it's okay. Pretend like you don't mind and move on. Unfortunately, this only lasts so long until eventually you blow up. And when you blow up, how does it come out in a real ugly way? Screaming, yelling, aggression, violence, whatever else it might be. Um, somehow you're going to show it in a way that doesn't feel good to the people around you and actually usually doesn't feel very good to you. Sometimes in that initial expression, it feels good to, quote unquote, get it off your chest. But usually if you get really ugly in how you express your anger, you're not going to feel good about it either. So what ends up happening for everyone who experiences it? They say, oh, look how bad anger is. See, this is why we don't like anger. This is why anger is so bad. So let's all put it away again. And then the cycle and the pattern continues. Hold it in, hold it in until you can't anymore. It comes out in an ugly way. And now all of a sudden you learn again, okay, see, I shouldn't have ever expressed my anger. This is what I see for a lot of people. Expressing anger is this um, third rail, unacceptable type of a thing where you just can't go there no matter what. But there is a middle ground. You don't have to either completely swallow your anger or rage rage and express it in a way that's unhealthy and hurtful to yourself and those around you. You can let someone know you're upset. Like all of our emotions, anger is also one that has value. It's not just a quote-unquote negative feeling. We sometimes separate feelings between negative and positive. Negative being things like anger, sadness, envy, jealousy, and positive being things like joy, happiness, excitement, Um, things of that nature, but we can't really, we shouldn't really do that because it makes us think that the quote-unquote bad ones are ones we should avoid or have no value. But anger is something important. It tells us that someone did something or something happened that felt unfair to us, that felt unjustified, and now we want to express that we're not okay with that and try to make things right. So someone says something that hurts you, hurts your feelings, or takes something from you, It's right for you to feel anger and to respond and let them know. And you can just let them know what you did really made me angry. And you can even raise your voice as long as it's not to an extreme degree. Of course, that can happen sometimes too. But what we want to do is express it in a way where our message gets across. When we're yelling and screaming and throwing things, yeah, the person knows we're angry, but we lose sight of the actual issue at hand and the anger itself becomes the issue. That's what we're dealing with. But if we express it in a way, hey, you know what? What you did really bothered me yesterday. And actually, I'm still angry about it. Then we can have a conversation. So we can actually make our quote unquote negative emotions become something very important that allows us first to communicate with ourselves and recognize that something's not okay. And then to communicate to that other person what we're upset about and possibly make things better between us. But most people think, oh, no, I shouldn't bother them by saying something they said made me upset. What is that going to do? Who does that help? No one likes to have that conversation. And you're right about that part. Most people don't like having those uncomfortable conversations, but the only way to have a genuine relationship means that you have to express those feelings, let them know that they upset you. And if there's someone who can tolerate that, now you've opened up the door to create a much closer relationship. And when it comes to becoming assertive in general, um, something I experience when I'm working with my clients is, Sometimes they'll say, okay, this sounds really good. And they're all excited about being more assertive, especially someone who's been passive their whole life. They're like, oh, I'm going to finally say what I want to say. And we're working on why they've been passive their whole life, the experiences in childhood, the messages they got, the experiences they've had, and now how they continue to do that. But I don't want to do it anymore. I'm going to be assertive. And then they start being assertive. And then they come back the next week and they say, oh, thanks a lot. I made eight people upset this week by things that I said. And then then we have to talk about how, yeah, that's how assertiveness works. When you tell people what you genuinely feel, sometimes they're not going to like that. The point of being passive or the way that people think it works for them is that it allows you to avoid conflict. But when you stop being passive and start becoming assertive, you're sometimes going to rub people the wrong way. You're going to disagree with people. You're going to say things that they might not like to hear, but that are your truths. And if you still say them in a respectful, kind way, you're still being assertive and not being aggressive, but it doesn't mean they're going to like what you have to say. So just think about if someone came up to you and said, you know, something you said yesterday didn't make me feel good and I'm upset. Of course, you're not going to be so thrilled by that, and it might make you feel uncomfortable or not very good. But if it's someone you care about, you want to know how they actually feel. So be ready that when you go to someone and express to them a disagreement or something You don't like about what they said or did, they're not going to be so excited about it, but it's the only way to create a genuine and happy relationship. So we must be ready that when we become more assertive, when we express all of our emotions, and especially if we start to express our anger, people aren't necessarily going to be so excited to hear it, but it's going to be important for us in being genuine to ourselves and to our relationships to express it. So we can't be afraid to do that and think that because people are responding negatively or don't seem to like it, then I should stop. That's the reason you never did it in the first place. You thought you had to do something because of other people only. Well, because she doesn't want to hear this, I'm not going to say it because he's going to get upset. I'm not going to say it, but that's not how genuine closeness and emotional intimacy works. Emotional intimacy, genuineness, openness, which are all necessary to create a close relationship means I'm going to be me. And I'm going to tell you who I am and show you who I am in a respectful, caring way. And I want that back from you because in that way we can become closer. So when we get over our fear of conflict, our fear of, of a disagreement, and our fear that if we share who we are, people will go away from us or won't love us anymore, we open the, up the door to actually create genuine, close, and loving relationships. All right, we have to wrap up the show for today thank you to amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there the book for this week is the happiness trap by russ harris i hope you'll join me in reading that and i'll talk about it on next monday's show you've been listening to in session with dr fatty delacui have a wonderful night